when we talk to people about the Christian message, about the gospel, it's right that we stress our inability. You know, we have to really be clear with people, especially sometimes when, when there's kind of a, an idea of you can do this and you can do that. You know, to really say that for those who are going to believe in the gospel, you really have to understand what you can't do. You are, you are unable, apart from Jesus Christ, to, to, to believe in God. You are unable, apart from Jesus Christ, to believe in Christ, to obey Christ, or to please God in any way. I think one of the things that we sometimes miss is the counterpart to that, is that in Christ we have the Spirit of God, and we are able to believe in Jesus Christ. We are able to obey God's commands. We are, in Christ, able to please God. I think that some Christians, and this is just my observation, but a lot of Christians are kind of living with, with only parts of the new covenant. They're only living with parts of the good news that Jesus Christ gave us, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to win for us. And that is the, that the other part that they are missing is the fact that the Spirit of God enables us, gives us the capability to obey God's commands, gives us the ability to believe, to see, to taste, to smell, the goodness of the life of the gospel. And so we're kind of making this inappropriate transition from, from apart from Jesus. You know, I, I know that I, know that I, can't, I can't obey God's commands and I, I, can't, I can't please God. And what we're doing is we're taking that and we're moving it into the Christian life. And I, I, I hear in a lot of people's uh, voices and a lot of what people say, their understanding, their belief that, you know, I just can't obey God. I'll never obey God. We're all sinners. We're all, we're all messed up. And so I can't obey God. I'm not obeying God. I'll never obey God. I never hear Paul talk that way. I, you, read through the, you read through the letters of Paul, you never hear him talking about his inability to obey God's commands. Anybody's inability to obey God's commands if they are in Jesus Christ. So what I hope you'll see today is that, yes, apart from Jesus Christ, we are unable to do nearly anything. We are unable to believe. We are unable to obey. We are unable to please. We are unable to see. We are unable to smell. We are unable to, to have Jesus Christ. We are unable to have a relationship with God. But because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we have the Spirit of God. Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ have the Spirit of God, and that makes us able to believe. That makes us able to obey Jesus Christ from the heart. Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 2. That's where we're going to start. 2 Corinthians 2. And what I want you to see first is a fragrance of Christ. A fragrance of Christ. Pick up in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. We'll read through the end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, a fragrance of Christ. This is what it says. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? 
For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. You look at verses 12 and 13 there. This is that's those couple of verses that kind of transition from, from the passage that went before. That was where Paul was talking about this, this relational difficulty that he had, this relational strain that he had with the church in Corinth, where they were, they were questioning him, there were some who were opposing him, and uh, he was talking about how, how his, uh, I, we see the link there between his concern as uh, for the gospel, but also his concern for the church. He cared about the church in Corinth so much that he was waiting for a message from Titus. And since Titus, Titus didn't show up, even though there was an opportunity to share the gospel in Troas, he needed to hear about the Corinthians. We're going to see this kind of echoed later on when he talks about a, a letter written on his heart, a letter written on their heart. There is, there is this concern that he has. He agonizes and is, is loving in his loving compassion for the church in Corinth. They, they are not responding to him appropriately. If they don't respond to him appropriately, that means they're cut off from the truth, which means they're cut off from the gospel. So he cares about, he's looking for Titus. He wants to hear some good news, and we'll pick up on this again uh, later on in chapter 7. But then you see Paul talking about his ministry, his ministry. And he says, thanks be to God. He's thanking God. He says, thanks be to God that who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That sounds good, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound awesome to be led in triumphal procession? It kind of sounds like the, like, like the parade after people win the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, the, 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 the fans are, are there on both sides, and you have the, the, the football players are on the floats, and they're being led down, and everybody's, uh, everybody's uh, just, just cheering for the, the great thing that God has done. The only thing is, is that that's not the whole picture here. Yes, Paul's a part of a parade. He's a part of a procession. But that word there that is, that is uh, translated led in triumphal procession, thriambuamai, okay, that's, that's the word, uh, fun word to say. Uh, Thriambuama sounds like Lebonto Relay, but it's not related anyway. It is uh, uh, it means one who is led along as a captive. See what would happen is that when a, a king conquered another people, he would take their king, the conquered king, and would take that king and all of his family, all of his kids, his wife, uh, all of his, all of the people who served in his his court, all of their, all of the the dignitaries, all the ambassadors, all the all the counselors, all the all the people who dressed really nice and li- lived really nice and and ruled the kingdom in the old kingdom, and he would drive them like cattle before him. And they would be dressed like slaves. And they would even, as they walked along, they would be begging the people around them for mercy because they are being driven along as captives. Wow, you know, there, there are a lot of commentators who cannot believe that Paul could be speaking that way. And so they, have, they even have trouble talking about it that way. They have trouble thinking of it that way. But in actuality, it fits with the way that Paul pictures ministry throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. The way he pictures the Christian life. He, he pictures the Christian life as, as apparent weakness. God's strength is demonstrated in our weakness. Now, we can't possibly think of, of living such an inglorious, having a, such an inglorious status, being, being so, uh, be, being 
driven along like captives or like slaves. We don't think of, we don't think of the Christian life that way. A lot, from the first century on to today, there have always been people who thought of the Christian life as the glorious, successful, prosperous life in some way. There's, there's a lot of power in the Christian life. That power in the Christian life has to look powerful, has to look good. It has to, it has to be good. Uh, and, and that's the way that the, the church in Corinth was thinking. That's the way his, uh, Paul's opponents were thinking. They were, they were talking about their abilities. They were bringing up everything that they had done. They were, they were very impressive people, people who looked good. They liked to, they liked to de- demonstrate how, how skilled they were. They liked their status. Paul says, let me, let me show you what, what the Christian ministry is really like. Let me show you what it's really like as an apostle. It's to be driven along as a captive. And that absolutely fits with the picture that we have from 1 Corinthians 4 where Paul talks about himself and the other apostles being led along like the captives at the end of the parade. You know, at the end of all the cattle where you're walking through the, 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 uh, the manure and the dust and the, the dirt and you're being dragged along in chains. Paul says that's, that's what we're like. And he's, he's trying to lead by example the Corinthians to how to think about the Christian life. You know, they, were, they, they wanted the higher life. They wanted a glorious life. They wanted a triumphant, victorious life. They thought it was big. They thought it was to look good. They thought it was to, to, to be kings already, to be wise already. And Paul's telling them by example, no, the, the Christian life is for God's strength to be demonstrated in your weakness. Paul says, I look apparently weak. God's power is demonstrated in my apparent weakness. You know, Paul, not everybody has the assignment to suffer the way that Paul did. Paul, when he writes to uh, the churches, he envisions a lot of people uh, living uh, ordinary Christian lives. They're going to keep serving as as uh, employers and employees and husbands and fathers and uh, wives and mothers and children, sons, daughters. Uh, they're going to be ordinary church members. They're going to be ordinary neighbors living, living in, in their neighborhoods, sharing the gospel, caring for people. Corinthians had really struggled with that. They wanted some kind of status in the church. They wanted some kind of notoriety in the church. And if they didn't have status or notoriety themselves, they certainly wanted to look up to somebody who did. Paul says, don't don't look at me for that. That's not the apostle's life. And if that's not the apostle's life, how much less is it our life? I find a lot of Christians are disenchanted with their inglorious assignment. They don't want to be ordinary church members. They don't want to be leaders. They don't want to be ordinary Christians. They want to be, they want to be something more. They want to be something bigger. They're not ordinary. I don't want to, I want to just be a, I just want to be dad. I want to just be ordinary, loving, faithful church member. I don't want to just be ordinary mom. I don't want to be just ordinary employee. I don't, I don't want to just be, I just don't want to, I just don't want to, I don't want to live that. That's kind of inglorious. That's, that's not big. That's not, that's not the big, awesome Christian life. That, that's not what people look up to. Even in the church, people don't look to that. People don't think of that as great. I mean, I want to, I want to, I want to rise up. I want to be bigger. I want a bigger stage. I want a bigger spotlight. It's not the Christian life. 
we ought to be content with whatever our position is. And you know what? If, if God calls you to be a pastor or a missionary, that, that's not a glorious position if you're doing it right. You know, and it, it, we hope that God will raise up people who will do great sacrificial things, but do those things not out of, not out of a pursuit of glory, but out of a willingness to serve other people. Paul says, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to suffer this way. I'm willing to live this way because that's the assignment that God gave me. I'm doing this for your sake. But the glory doesn't go to the guy who's a part of the procession. It goes to the conquering king, who is Jesus Christ. And I'm glad. He says, thanks be to God. I'm glad to be captivated by Jesus Christ, to be his slave, to be his captive, to have been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. I'm glad to be his. Well, he says there from uh, another, another part of that procession, what would often happen is that people would, would uh, swing incense or cast incense while they were in the parade. So they weren't just throwing beads. They weren't just uh, looking good. They were, they were actually extending a smell. And Paul says, we are the fragrance of Christ. This, this message, we are, we are, I like the way he says it in verse 14, says it a couple of different ways. He says, the fragrance of the knowledge of him, of Christ everywhere. We are spreading the knowledge, the, the, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is, think about the way smell works. And he's, he's giving a, a different image for something that Jesus already given. If you know the story of the, of the parable of the sower or the soils or however you want to talk about it. Jesus talks about that. He talks about the sower went out to sow seed. He's throwing seed everywhere. It is the indiscriminate, untargeted uh, spreading of the gospel. Paul's the same way. We're spreading incense everywhere. We're spreading the fragrance of Christ everywhere. Everybody's getting to smell it. It's going everywhere. Paul and Jesus did not believe in market research. They did not believe that you figured out who would be most most responsive to the gospel, and you went and found those people, and you found those people who you thought would be responsive, you found out their felt need, and then you told them the gospel, you met their felt need, and then you, along with that, you kind of brought the, brought the gospel in there with it. That is not what Jesus and Paul believed. Paul goes everywhere, and he spreads the gospel to everybody. And then he says, to some, look at verse 16, to one, a, a fragrance. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are piercing. Two categories. Even though there are four soils in the parable of the soils, there are really only two responses. There's the understanding, accepting, bearing fruit response, and then there is the ultimately bearing no fruit response. Same thing here with Paul. There are really only two responses. There's the believing, leading to life response. And there is the rejecting or unbelieving leading to death response. So he says he's got the same, he's got the same fragrance going out there, the same odor, the same smell. To some people, it is the stench of death. It smells like rot. Here are these ragged, unimpressive preachers coming through. Not, not like the other preachers that they had in that society, not like, the, not like the talking heads that we have on TV, not the, not the people who look good, not the people who are impressive, not the people who are held together. These are ragged, uh, beaten to death, uh, starved, uh, inadequate clothes people coming in, and they are preaching a, a, a quote-unquote gospel good news of a, of a crucified, 
Uh, That is, one who died as the lowest of criminals, a crucified so-called Savior. A lot of people didn't like the smell of that. To a lot of people, that was the stench. They wanted to move up in society. They wanted victory. They wanted triumph. They wanted glory. And here they have inglorious messengers preaching a scandalous Christ, King. They didn't like the smell of that. Then you have others for whom the smell is life. The smell of the gospel, the fragrance of the gospel, the aroma of the gospel is life to them. It is home to them. Even if they've never known home. It is peace and joy and life. It is, it is love. It is, it is the, the filling up of their entire being. It is light shining in a dark place. It is, it is the light switch comes on so, in their lives. The gospel is life to them. And they are being saved. That gospel that, that, that is life to them becomes eternal life for them in their believing of it. I think something that we should draw from this is that Paul indiscriminately spread the gospel. That's what we ought to be doing. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking uh, over and over again, uh, and we'll come back to this over and over again. Over and over again, I'm thinking about how does what the apostle Paul does, how does what he did connect to what we do? I think it's something like this. If this is, if Christ is the cornerstone of the, of the church, built on the foundation of the preaching of the apostles of the church, then this is what the church ought to be doing. Spreading the fragrance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is to spread it. And we, we, don't, have, we don't have control over, over whether or not people respond to it. Have you ever tried to get a toddler to eat something unappealing? Tell me how to change their taste buds and make them want to eat eat that. You can't change people's taste buds. You can't you can't change the fragrance that they find appealing and that that they find repulsive. All you can do is spread the smell. Spread the odor. Spread the fragrance, spread the aroma of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let people respond. Where you should pray that people respond. We shouldn't, be respond we shouldn't be surprised when people are repulsed. Because it smells like death to them. Now then Paul says, no, we shouldn't miss one part there of another place that the aroma is going. Notice in verse 15, it says, we are the aroma of Christ to God. Paul's kind of mixing metaphors or mixing images. He talked about in the sacrifices, there would, there would often be something in the Old Testament, there would be sacrifices and often be said that the Lord smelled the, the appeasing sacrifice and he was pleased. You know, when you spread the gospel, there might be a lot of people who are repulsed by that. I can tell you one person who will be pleased with what you do. That's God. 
when you preach, when you proclaim, when you share with your neighbor or your family member or your coworker about the gospel of Jesus Christ, I can guarantee you that there will be one person who is pleased with what you are doing. God. He will be, God is always happy for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed. He loves to see his son. The father loves to see his son glorified. And the preaching of the gospel glorifies his son. And he says there, there at the end, he's, end of verse 16, he says, who is sufficient for these things? My automatic reaction to that Maybe like yours. Who's, who is sufficient for the preaching of this gospel? Who is sufficient for the preaching of this gospel that leads to eternal death or eternal life? Who's sufficient for that? All, my automatic answer is no one. That's only partially correct. That's only partially correct. Because what Paul is saying is, is there is a sufficiency for preaching this gospel. Here's one person who's insufficient, though. He says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. You, you cannot be a peddler of God's word and be sufficient. This is someone who, who preaches something that they call the word of God, and they do it for money or status or notoriety or some other ulterior motive. They in some way taint the preaching of what they call God's word. They call it God's word. They're preaching something different. They're doing it. They're peddling it. They're throwing it out there so that people will be happy with them, so that they will see them. Paul says, we're we're not like that. We are not like peddlers, but as men of sincerity, we're sincere, we're single-minded, we're genuine, we're we're authentic. We We are those who are consistently preaching what, here's two things, as commissioned by God, that is, God is the author of the message. See, a peddler, a peddler is someone who is a, who, who is a, a, a salesman of the gospel instead of a messenger of the gospel. Somebody who's just trying to deliver it. Instead, they're peddling it. What, what do you do if you want to get paid for preaching God's word? You tell people what they want to hear. You, admit, you, you change the message a little bit. Make it a little bit, a little bit more appealing. Paul says we're commissioned by God. He's the author. He's the one who sent us out. We, we have a message. We don't have any authority to change that message. So here we are, uh, ragged, uh, shameful, dishonorable messengers preaching a gospel of a crucified uh, Savior who hasn't conquered any great peoples. We're preaching that. Wouldn't it be nice if we could kind of change that a little bit? Wouldn't we draw a bigger crowd? Wouldn't we bring in more money? Wouldn't we be able to dress nicer if we, if we kind of took the edge off that? I mean, made, made that some way, in some way a little bit more appealing to people? Paul can't do that. He's commissioned by God. He also says, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. One of the things you pick up on in 2 Corinthians is that ultimately the preacher is accountable to God. God takes it very seriously what those who speak in his name say. 
Jesus even alluded to this in, in Matthew 24. He talks about the, the parable of, of the servant, the, the thief, uh, the, the one who comes like a thief in the night. The, the owner comes home. He's left everything in the steward's hands. Uh, and then Matthew does something strange there. He talks about the head steward. What if he comes back and finds the head steward beating the other servants and getting drunk and not managing the household well? Oh, it's going to be, the others will be beaten with a light beating. He'll receive a severe beating. That's, that's very sobering if you are going to be one who preaches what you call the word of God. Because God's watching you. And God's going to take care of all those, all of the false teachers who preach for money. God will take care of them. Wow. Paul says, we know that. You know what? We're, we're sincere. We're sincere. We're, we're sober. Because we know this is, this is no joke. This is, this is not a commercial deal. Where we are telling people what they want to hear so that they will give us what we need to buy. We have a message. We have a God who's watching us and making sure that we're saying what he says. At the very beginning, that's what it looks like to be sufficient. It's to be sincere. Now we've seen Paul talk about what it means to be sincere what it means to be uh, spirit, spirit working, okay? So we want to see next a letter from Christ, a letter from Christ. So we've seen a fragrance of Christ. Now we have a letter from Christ. Look at, look into chapter three and read verses one through three with me. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. There where he's talking there at the beginning about, our, do we have to commend ourselves again? Imagine, imagine this kind of uh, great... Uh, this is, there's this great job. There's this job of being apostles to the Corinthians. And that's put up on, what do people put it up on monster.com? Uh, and, and, and everybody's sending in their resume. Paul, Paul's basically saying, hey, do I have to send in my resume again? Do I have to, do I have to send that in to, to you Corinthians and say, hey, I'm, a, I'm applying for the job that I already have? You know, all, the, all these, all these quote-unquote super apostles, these, these special teachers, these, these, uh, the, the, the good-looking ones the, uh, the, the, who are coming in and, and preaching and telling you what you want to hear, they, they, they bring in these, these letters of recommendation, and they want referrals from you to go out to the other churches. But do I, do I need to do that? We have a letter. He says, first, we have a letter that's on our own hearts to be known and read by all. Paul's, Paul just says, everybody who knows about what, I, what I've done among you, and everybody who knows how I, how I care about you, and what I've done for you, and, and everybody who knows how I love you, and how I feel about you, they don't need another letter to know that I'm the apostle to the Corinthians. They don't, they don't need that. There's a, there's a letter written in our hearts, and also that kind of hints at the way that Paul cares about the church. He loves the church. 
He loves the church in Corinth. He really cares about these churches that he started. He loves them. He says, look, you're on my heart. And this is not somebody who just says, you know, maybe maybe in, in a way that we sometimes do. We're not, in, in a, maybe an insincere way. Hey, you, you know, you're on my heart. Now he's saying, no, literally, like, you are on my heart. Everybody can look at it. Everybody can read the letter that's on my heart and know that I love the Corinthians. And he says there's also a letter that is you. You are, you yourselves, the church in Corinth, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. I don't need to send in a resume. I don't need to fill out an application. I don't need to get references. You're my reference. You're, my, you're the proof of my apostleship. Now then he says, not, not, written with, not written with ink on paper, but the spirit of the living God on human hearts. Not on tablets of stone. You know, he's, he's calling together, uh, calling to mind there the old covenant. Okay? So there's something really important in 2 Corinthians. One of the reasons why I thought it would be such a good idea to preach through 2 Corinthians is this, this understanding of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. When he's talking about the tablets of stone, he's making an allusion to the Old Covenant. That is, the covenant made with the people of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. And here's how this covenant went. God gave them commands summarized in the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. And he said, if you keep these commandments, then you will be my people. You'll be separate to me out of all the peoples on the earth. You'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you obey my commands, you will be special. And you'll live in the land that I promised to your fathers. And you'll live there in prosperity. You'll have life and prosperity in the land if you obey my commands. What do we know from the history of Israel? We know that they did not obey God's commands. To the point that God took them out of the land. Took them into the exile. Now then, right about the time that they were brought into exile, God began to speak to them through some prophets. Who would talk about them, talk to them about something that was coming. So listen to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. This is what it says. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Okay, so let's just stop there for just a second. The promise that Ezekiel is making is all the ways that you used to bow down to idols, all the ways that you used to rebel against my, against me as, as God, I'm going to take all that away. I, God himself is fulfilling the promises made to Abraham by saying, I'm going to make a people who have clean hearts. I'm going to take away all their idolatry. And he says in verse 26, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the, the heart of stone. Remember what he's just said, what Paul just said in uh, chapter 3, 
not written on tablets of stone. You have, you have stony, uh, stubborn, unyielding, unloving hearts. I'm going to take them away. You can't be my people with stony hearts. I'm going to take, take away that heart. I'm going to put in a new spirit, a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That, in chapter 3, literally what Paul says, written not on tablets of stone, but on hearts of flesh. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You, you used to not obey my commands or my rules. You used to rebel. You used to bow down to idols and disobey me. I'm going to change all that. I'm going to change all that. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians is that I came and preached the gospel to you. You're my letter of recommendation. You are the, the letter from God that says, you're, Paul, you're a minister of the new covenant. Here's how I know that that's true. You have new hearts. You have hearts that are ready to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have hearts that are ready to obey God's commands. You, are, you have hearts that are ready. You have mouths that are ready to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I know because you're different. I know because you're changed. I know because you have the spirit. Here is the, here is the spirit of God. Here's the new covenant. Uh, around the same time that Ezekiel is writing, another a prophet named Jeremiah uh, Ezekiel is off in exile. Jeremiah is back home, but they're both preaching about the same time. And Jeremiah says, hey, this is the new covenant. Paul saying, hey, the old covenant, you, you could not obey. This is, what the, this, is, this is what was happening. You could not obey. But now that disobedience has been taken away so that you could obey my commands. You, you are the testimony of my new covenant ministry. The Spirit came to uh, people in Corinth who were not Jews. They were people from all ethnicities. They were what was called Gentiles. And they believed in Jesus Christ. And they began to be obedient to Jesus Christ from the heart. They were written by the Spirit. The Spirit that God gives in the New Covenant. And I think, I think if that's the reality... If we have the Spirit of God that enables us to believe in Jesus Christ, to confess Jesus Christ, to obey Jesus Christ, if we have that Spirit, then let us walk in the Spirit. Let us bear the fruit of the Spirit. If we have the Holy Spirit, then let's walk in holiness. That's, that's, the, that's the gospel that we ought to be believing I think it's become fashionable for us to misapply our inability. We have a natural inability apart from Jesus Christ where we cannot obey God's commands. We cannot believe the gospel. We cannot smell the life of the gospel. But by the Spirit of God, we have the ability to obey God's commands. So we should never be saying things like, you know, I just, I, I'm always disobeying. I disobey God's commands. I just can't change. I can't, I can't obey. The, the gospel is, yes, you have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God does what you could never do before. The Spirit of God changes your heart. We have this letter from Christ. 
And I think that we could say the same thing about anybody who is in Jesus Christ and any church of Jesus Christ that is being changed by the Spirit. Every place where God's people are gathering, we could say, hey, this is a letter that the gospel is real. This is a letter that says from Christ that says the new covenant is real. God really does change. That's what, you know, that's what it means to be Spirit-filled or Spirit-driven is to have people who are loving the way that only the Spirit can cause people to be loving. To obey the way that only the Spirit can cause people to obey. Well, the final thing that we see is a sufficiency through Christ. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You remember the question they asked, who is sufficient for these things? Paul has been saying, we are. Who is sufficient for being an aroma or a fragrance to those who are being saved? Who is, who is sufficient for, for being the kind of smell or the odor that is leading others to reject Jesus Christ and, and to smell the stench of death? Who is sufficient for that? Paul says, we are. Paul and the other apostles, they, they are sufficient for this work of ministry. What we have written by the apostles is sufficient. That is, that is the word of God. Who could, who could write this? We can. Who can preach this? We can. Who is sufficient for these things? We are. But then he clarifies, not this, that the sufficiency is from ourselves. Not that we have the ability, but our ability comes from God. He says, we are sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant from God. Now, then he says something there at the end. Something that is, that is well known, like it's kind of one of those things that kind of rings in your mind. How many of, how many of you have heard, maybe, maybe you hadn't heard a lot of things in, in the Christian life, but you maybe have heard something not by the letter, but by the Spirit. Not the letter, but the Spirit. You know, in different times, that has been uh, woefully misconstrued. You know, early in the church, it was taken as, hey, we're not, we're not looking for the literal meaning of what the Bible says. We're looking for the, the, the bigger spiritual meaning. Uh, that was something that was relatively common in the early church. Other people uh, later on took it as, hey, this means that uh, we're not, we're not trying, trying to follow the letter. That is, that, that's legalistic. We're not trying to obey God's commands. We're trying to live in the Spirit. And there are no commands in the, in the New Covenant. Uh, except for the fact that in the Old Covenant, uh, you know, 613, famously, that the, the rabbis had counted. Uh, there are uh, hundreds more in the New Testament. Hundreds more commands than just those 613. I mean, there are, uh, there are commands in the New Testament. You can't read the letters of Paul and think, hey, he's a minister of the New Covenant who doesn't give commands. And then read, look, about half the letters are commands. Uh, some people have even taken it as, hey, we don't, we don't need to obey the, the Old Testament. We're only New Testament. That's not what Paul's talking about here. When he's talking about the letter, when he's talking about the letter, he is talking about the law in its condemning function. Okay? So this is, this is the, the law couldn't do something. The law, the law throughout the scriptures, Paul says this in Romans 7, the law is perfect. The law is, there is nothing wrong with the law. 
The law is the perfect revelation of God's character. The problem is with us. The problem is that the law is perfect, but the law does not give us the ability to obey it. So I can tell you, you know, uh, imagine you know you need to you're trying to make the football team, you're trying to make the New Orleans Saints. All you have to be able to do is bench press three fifteen twenty times. Uh, all you have to do to, to to make it on an NBA basketball team is grow to be at least six foot six. That does not give you the ability to do it. I can I can tell you many I can command you to do things doesn't give you the ability to do it. And that's what the law is like. The law is summarized in the Old Covenant as the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. Love your, love your, uh, honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not steal. Implied in each of those is the necessity to care for your neighbor the way that you would care for yourself. So not only do not murder, but also care for your, for your neighbor's life. Do not hate your neighbor. Do not commit adultery. That also implies the the need to not lust. Do not covet. Do not be greedy. That's that's what's implied there. Even what Jesus' summary is. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I find the golden rule. The golden rule that many of us learn very young in life. I find the golden rule to be one of the most convicting commands that we could possibly think of. How could God say it any other way than to say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Do you know how often we fail at that? Do you know how often I fail at that? We think of the golden rule as like the little kitty rule that we tell to kids in, 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 in little B kids class. No, the, the golden rule is for us. And it says to us, on the one hand, you don't do this. Or Jesus summarizes it elsewhere as love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love, love God with your entire being and love your neighbor as yourself. The way that you take care of yourself, you take care of your neighbor. Where the law commands that. The letter commands that. And when you don't do it, the letter condemns you for it. The law condemns every one of us for our failure to obey God's commands. But he says there, he says, this is, this is not, the, not the letter, but the spirit. The letter kills. The letter kills because the, the letter or the law sentences you to death for your sins. The spirit doesn't do that. The, the promise of the new covenant is that the spirit would come and give you the ability to obey God's commands. Not that any of us would ever be, be right before God because of our obedience to God's commands, but having already been justified in Jesus Christ, having been counted righteous by him, in him, we are also given the spirit of God to obey God's commands. So he says the spirit, we have not, not of the letter, but the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You were, you were dead before. The reason why you couldn't, couldn't obey is because you were dead spiritually. He uses that image to really press home the fact that you couldn't do anything. You couldn't believe. You know, the whole time that, whole time that fragrance was out there, the fragrance of the gospel, do you know why you believed at one point and other people didn't? 
It's because the Spirit of God gives life. It's not because of your natural ability to understand things that other people couldn't. It's because the Spirit gives life. And now that you're alive, do you know what you're able to do? You're able to believe. You're able to confess. You're able to obey. In Christ, you please God by your obedience. Jesus Christ died for you by his his righteous life and his death on the cross. He fulfilled every, every standard of conduct. He fulfilled the law on your behalf so that you would be righteous and forgiven before God. If all you ever believe in the Christian life, though, is I can't change, I always disobey, I can't obey, I can't change, I can never do anything right, why try, isn't it, isn't it good that, that, you know, if you're, if you're theologically astute, then you, then you talk about the righteousness of Christ, and you talk about how the, the heart is, is uh, wicked, and, 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 and our righteousness is filthy rags, I mean, if you, if you kind of know the lingo, you just kind of go, you, just, you use that as an excuse for your disobedience. What Jesus Christ gave us is his very own spirit. We know that Jesus Christ himself was sinless. While we'll never be sinless in this life, he has given us the same spirit that enabled him as a human being to obey all of God's commands. He walked in the spirit. He had the spirit without measure. When it says, when when John starts to talk about, I, I baptize I'll baptize you with water, but there's going to be one who will baptize you with fire and spirit. He's talking about, I'm going to pour out the spirit. I'm going to, I'm going to submerge you in the spirit. You are going to be saturated with the spirit. The spirit of God that used to only dwell in the temple is now going to dwell in you. Let's not be hopeful about or, or hopeless about the Christian life. Let us not think that we cannot obey God's commands. When everything about what Jesus Christ declares to us in the gospel, what the apostles declare to us in the gospel, is that by the Spirit of God, we are capable of obeying God's commands. As much as we were unable to obey the law without the Spirit, we are now able to obey God's commands by the Spirit. How do we not believe that? And if we do believe that, how do we not walk in that? How do we not walk in the love that only the Spirit gives? How do we not walk in the fruit of the Spirit? How do we, how do we not give every part of our being pressing in to obey God's commands? Jesus said, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. How, are, how is he hoping they would do that? Because he was promising, he was committing himself. He died on the cross to enact the new covenant, which is the giving of the Spirit of God. If we're not striving for obedience, then we are not. That's what it means to not be a Spirit-filled church. To not be a spiritual church means that we are a church that does not care about obedience. Every place where you have people who don't care about obedience, that's where the Spirit is not. Where you have love, where you have service, where you have people striving to obey God's commands, that's where the Spirit is. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
That freedom is, is freedom from slavery to sin. Walk in freedom. If the Spirit has set us free, let us walk in freedom. Freedom from slavery to sin. If we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then let us live in holiness. If we have been indwelt by the Spirit of love, then let us be loving. Let me just kind of recap everything that Paul has said. He says, this is, our, this is our ministry. This is our sufficiency from God. We're going out spreading the gospel everywhere. You Corinthians, you believed it because the Spirit gave you life. Life to believe, life to obey. Have we believed that? And if so, are we living that way? If we have the Spirit of God, are we walking in the Spirit of God? I think, I don't think it was ever intended to be this way. I don't think anybody, that any of the people that, that I understood in my lifetime to be teaching what it means to be gospel-centered or gospel-driven. But somewhere along the line, for a lot of people, being gospel-centered or gospel-driven meant being excusing disobedience. Acting as if change didn't happen, or change was unimportant, or obedience didn't matter. That's not what it means to be gospel-centered. That's not what it means to believe the gospel. What it means to believe the gospel is to believe the whole gospel. That our sins were forgiven in Jesus Christ for his sake, because of his life and not because of our own. And to also have a heart that is changed by the Spirit of God. The same spirit that now lives within us and enables us to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Let us be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ by the spirit of God as we hear the gospel. Amen. Uh, Father, please help us. Uh, please make us able by your spirit. Help us not to dishonor you by saying that you've only given us half of what you promised. That you've only given us forgiveness of sins without giving us the ability to not sin. Help us to look to your ways and to believe your promises. Help us to walk by your spirit. Help us not to believe those who excuse sin or those who, who seek a a, a victorious, triumphant life, but instead help us to walk in humble, uh, servant-minded obedience to your commands. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.